0: On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture.
1: Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod.
2: So welcome
0: back to Art of Darkness. This is a very special Dark Room episode where for uh, folks who listen to us know we dig back into a subject we've already covered uh, with a special guest who, you know, knows more than we do. Uh, (laughs) um, It's not hard. It's It's a very low bar. We're going to have so (laughs) so many guests come on. It's limitless. Yeah. Yeah. So um, today we're having on, uh, we're going to, we're going to, go back into William Faulkner. And to help us out with that, we have the great Carl, Carl Rawlison, uh, a professional biographer uh, with the University of Toronto PhD. He's written acclaimed biographies on Marilyn Monroe, uh, Susan Sontag, Sylvia Plath, Amy Lowell, Rebecca West, and of course, uh, William Faulkner, two volumes of William Faulkner biography. Um, not only is uh, Mr. Rawlison a preeminent biographer, but he's also a, a leading voice on the topic of biography uh, in itself, you know, as a craft or as an art form with books like uh, Biography, A User's Guide, which I'm gonna read, uh, and uh, his, po- his podcast, uh, A Life in Biography, where not only does he talk about the craft of biography, um, gives some, some biographical profiles, uh, and also interviews other great biographers. Um, He's written columns for the New York Sun, book book reviews for many of the big papers, including Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and, and many many others. Um, he's also got a couple of biographical plays out there about um, hey. Rebecca West and Walter Brennan. Uh, Kevin's right. a playwright, so that's gonna perk his ears up quite a bit. One of us, yes. one of us. <laughs> <laughs> and as I'm as I was doing a little bit of research, um, I, I found this great quote uh, from Ann Waldron, the biographer of Eudora Welty and Carolyn Gordon. She says, uh, Carl Rawlison knows more about biographies than anyone else in the world. His independent mind, his experience, and his voracious reading have equipped him to produce amazing insights into the reading and writing of biographies. So, Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for giving us your time. We really appreciate
2: it. Um, well, you're welcome. Yeah, we're I sort, I sort of hope I live up to that introduction. Oh, I well,
0: well, yeah, I guess we'll see. But it's um, yeah, there's a there's a number of things that made you a man after my own heart. So your interest in William Faulkner, and also the fact that you've got so many so many irons and so many uh, so many fires as Kevin and I both both tend to tend to do as well. So, um, so yeah, it's really excited to talk to you. I, I think I was drawn to you uh, initially in my twittering for the Art of Darkness. Uh, uh, Twitter account, that's art of, at Art of Dark Pod. Um, you're doing a day-by-day day in the life of William Faulkner. Uh, where are you drawing that material from? How do you get that?
2: It's a, it's a um, collection of all sorts of things. Uh, some obvious places to look mm-hmm. uh, in his selected letters that Joseph Blotner published. Okay. So you have a lot of dates there uh, and, uh, events and people to draw in. So that's one, uh, all the other biographies of Faulkner, including mine, uh, I'm, 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 doing for, for the day by day. And probably most important is the fact that since I've written a biography of Faulkner, I've done a lot of archival work, uh, at the university of Virginia, university of South Carolina, um, many other archives, uh, that have, that hold his work. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that material gets into biographies, of course. Right. But the point about a day-by-day book is it's not a narrative. It is Mm -hmm. a kind of diary, and there are all sorts of things that, even in a two-volume biography, you have to leave out. Right. Uh, And because there are certain details that fit your narrative and certain details which might be interesting in and of themselves but would make the book just impossibly long. Right. So I decided this would be a good way to do, uh, in a sense, a biography without a narrative, mm-hmm. and and what you can do in that case is, in a sense, if you're the reader of day by day, is you could sort of create your own biography of Faulkner. Right. Look at the you know the kinds of details that that biographers do pick out mm-hmm. and and make a story out of. So I've been very interested in that. I did it. I did this for Marilyn Monroe. I have a Marilyn Monroe day-by-day book. Okay. Uh, and I'm working on a two-volume biography of Sylvia Plath. The Faulkner Day-by-Days. Yeah, I, it's one You're volume. doing the
0: day-by-day day for her as well, right? Or you yes, I be, am. Yeah, okay. Yeah,
2: and yeah. I thought it was going to be one volume, but um, more than any other biographical subject I've worked on, uh, she made a point of recording her life mm. in diaries. She mm. started keeping diaries at the age of 12. So oh, even wow, though okay. she only lived, you know, to the age of thirty, um, the amount of material in journals, diaries, letters, right. uh, uh, manuscripts uh, is is quite phenomenal. Plus, right. in the forties, uh, she was a great listener to radio programs. Okay. So I have a lot of annotations. You know, she would listen to um, programs like Charlie McCarthy and uh, the Great Gildersleeve and Jack Benny. And a lot of these old-time radio shows are now online. So um, I have links to them. So you could actually oh, cool. read her day oh, cool. by day and go right to that program if you want. That,
1: that's really I amazing. love that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really brilliant. Amazing. Well, that might be a good segue into the thing we're teasing for the After Dark episode for our Patreon subscribers, which has to do with Faulkner's uh, favorite television show. But right. we'll we'll let <laughs> we'll that sit. We'll let that sit for now, and that's of course at
0: patreon slash art of dark pod. Yeah. So this kind of leads me to the Faulkner and Sylvia Plath. These are two figures that are interesting to me. One day we will do a uh, we will do a Sylvia Plath episode, and we will rely on your biographies uh, with plenty of credit uh, <laughs> to okay. create our as what we we have we have been instructed. We're doing profiles. Uh, and uh, I think that's I think that's that's accurate. Um, I have
1: to update the website
0: now. Yeah, I I'm know. actually kind of
1: upset. <laughs> 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 I got homework after this episode. Right, this is like right. uh, this is like Jimi Hendrix meeting the the guy who builds uh, Fender guitars or whatever yeah, Hendrix. Yeah, right? you know what yeah, I mean? yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Really exciting episode. <laughs> a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. So and I, and and I'm glad you kind of mentioned the archive archival material i think one thing that can get lost in the in the sort of the age of the internet and everything being so readily readily available online and not that we're digging into archives so much uh, it's really not the thrust of our show but both kevin and i have spent uh, both Kevin and I went to University of Texas for graduate school, hmm. and we spent a lot of time at the uh, Harry Ransom Center down there. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. which is yeah,
2: an, an, an yeah.
0: incredible—an incredible archive. And they had a limited, uh, a limited amount of Faulkner's. I think it was some of his personal letters and his photographs. Um, yeah, they have something
2: else really important. What's that? There was a biographer, Carvel Collins, who started to research a biography of Faulkner in 1948. Okay. And uh, until his death in the early 1990s, kept promising this biography and it never, never appeared. Huh. And a lot of people, including me, were skeptical that he had based, you know, he made his whole career.
0: Oh, on if he was going to write this book. And... A
2: biography. He never yeah. did. So I went to the ransom center and there were 105 boxes of material that he collected. Whoa. Uh, and I'm the first biographer To go through every single box, every piece of paper. And what I found was an extraordinary treasure. For instance, Faulkner, when he came to New York, loved to stay at the Algonquin. So one of the things that Carvel Collins did uh, was interview the staff of the Algonquin about Faulkner.
0: That'll get you the dirt, right? Talking to uh, those kinds well, of a hotel,
2: just you know, <laughs> yeah. a sense of him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Collins was an academic. You know, he was a professor at Notre Dame, mm-hmm. and it, that was not the sort of thing that most, uh, even even uh, biographers do were academics. It was not the kind of thing. You know, they were interested in the work, and mm-hmm. uh, they didn't get into that kind of nitty. Usually, the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. It's more more. Um, likely today for that to happen. But, but as a result, the, the, all the stuff that Collins accumulated, uh, you know, he became best friends with one of Faulkner's lovers, for example. I mean, the incredible amount of detail just improved the texture of my, my biography immeasurably. Yeah. And I was just astonished that, you know, there, there have been several Faulkner biographies that no biographer had really taken the time to do that
0: yeah that's that's what's amazing about this archival material and, and and i want to talk more about your specifically your two volumes but just, uh, just kind of nerding out about the wonders of archives for a minute that's what's kind of so great about them there can be these things just sitting sitting in a shelf somewhere they're being taken care of they're kept you know safe from degradation and yet nobody goes to see them because i, I guess there's one or two steps of uh, hoops you have to jump through before you get to them you can't just click on a link and so nobody goes to look at them and uh I know I've had profound experiences going through the, the some of the I I didn't uh, apparently I didn't get into that part of the Faulkner archive, but but looking at um uh there was some Hemingway stuff at the at the Harry For Ransom sure, yeah. Center. Um there's uh and, and some more modern writers the Don DeLillo archive is there, some David Foster Wallace stuff. Um Norman well, Mailer has
2: a huge. Norman
0: Mailer is the other one I was yeah. thinking of. Yeah, so so yeah, the, I tell people Austin is this great city with all this cool hip stuff to do, and every and after my time there, when people ask me what to do, I say go to the Harry Ransom Center. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. you, can, yeah. you can drink a craft beer anywhere. You, you
1: can. <laughs> yeah, Mamet,
0: so. Mamet has his
1: collection there, That's too. That's right. There's so yeah, many great collections. Another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: let's talk for a minute about your... You wrote two William Faulkner biographies. Uh, the Past is Never Dead Was the first one, covering up mm-hmm. to 19, uh, 1897 to 1934. And then uh, the second one is An Alarming Paradox.
2: Yes, this Alarming Paradox. Okay.
0: Yeah. So what is the... um. How do you decide on where to split something like that?
2: Mm-hmm. It's a little arbitrary, to be honest. Okay, okay. As someone else, some other biographer might have made a different um, right. choice. Uh, for me, it, it just seemed, just moving into the 1930s, after he's written some of his great works like The Sound of the Fury uh, and As I Lay Dying, Light in August, for example, Sanctuary, um, that he's beginning to, I use this phrase throughout the second volume of the Faulkner biography, to write a new kind of history. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is that he starts in, in 1934 to write a novel called Pylon, which is actually about aviators. It, it, it's yeah. not his usual subject, although he was very interested in aviation, uh, but he's, he's usually associated with, with southern novels with his, his uh, mythical county, Yoknapatawpha. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the book after that, Absalom, Absalom, it's where he really comes to grips with history mm-hmm. uh, in a conscious, deliberate way. Uh, it, it's the first novel to do that. It's not that there aren't elements of the same history in earlier books, but his treatment of race in light in August, for example, is striking. But the issue of race, of uh, how one is defined by race... Doesn't come until the middle 1930s. Mm. So that seemed going into Pylon and Absalom Absalom to begin the second volume seemed the right way to do it. Okay. Uh, yeah. And in terms of, it it's also depends on the kind of material you have. Um, it, with a two volume biography, you're trying to even it out so that one sure. volume is not too much longer than the other. So the second volume, I think, is about 100 pages longer than the first. But if you look at them side by side on the shelf, there isn't that much of a physical difference between the two volumes. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, that period, that period is interesting to me. I know when we were digging into our research um, and we had um, the great writer Aaron Gwynn on to help us out, who's a um, who's a novelist and and teaches at um, UNC Charlotte. He's a bit of a a Faulkner uh, scholar or aficionado himself. Um, And I was really fascinated about this exact time period. Okay, so he writes Pylon, which... um, if another writer put it out, it would probably be considered a great novel. But in in Faulkner's Oove, it's a little bit of a clunker, um, yeah. I think. And then writes Absalom, Absalom! Right after, which is on the same shelf as Moby Dick or or you know any great novel, right? Um, and it's that transition is is, is amazing to me. To yeah. me,
2: well, um, it's interesting because he's he, the reason he wrote Pylon in a way. Uh, is that he was having trouble with Absalom, Absalom? It was such an intricate novel. His solution: <laughs> is to, to write another to, book. <laughs> yes, to write another book. Uh, he did the same thing when he was working on the Fable. He stops. He's having yeah. trouble, and he writes yeah. Intruder in the Dust. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. Very
2: that's, typical of Faulkner to do that.
0: That's a he was something else. That was another thing we kind of I kind of learned, and this is what's fascinating about doing this you know, the research into the going deeper into the artist's life is you kind of you do start to get a sense of what they're like. And Faulkner, I think, was there was he had a certain stamina and energy that we don't really see in many of our other subjects. I don't think like you say, okay, I'm having a little trouble writing this book, so I'll just write an entire other book, right? <laughs> Most yeah. people would go on vacation, or or you know whatever they would find. Or they would just whine out. about
2: the writer's block.
0: Yeah, or they would take twenty <laughs> years to do it. Yeah, exactly. And and he just sort of he just sort of bared down and and, and just did it. Um. So it's, that's pretty amazing. Um. Absalom, Absalom. I think I heard you in an interview or a presentation you were giving. You described that as his as his best or his greatest book. Um. Is it? The history, the, the the what you're talking about in terms of his uh, adoption of a new approach at history, what what is it about Absalom, Absalom that you think amongst all of his great books? Yeah, at the time. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's hard. Some people might say the Sound of the Fury. Some well, yeah. some people might pick another novel. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's Absalom, Absalom because of the tremendous number of layers in the mm. book. And it, it's both its mental reach, but it's geographical uh, reach. Uh, and it's, you know, partly it's set in the 19th century, part of it's set in the 20th century. Uh, the range of characters, uh, not only Quentin Thompson, the Southerner who's at Harvard, he's in the Northeast, uh, but his roommate, Shreve McCannon, who's a Canadian, Canadian yeah. who takes over some of the story. And for me, um, Sharif is absolutely crucial uh, Mm -hmm. because it's, in a sense, it's Faulkner's way of saying, you know, this might be about the South, but it's a story that needs these other narrators. And it's a story that can only be told over time. In other words, Mm -hmm. the story keeps changing as each narrator in different eras or epochs Mm -hmm. tries to put together this story of Thomas Sutton who comes into uh, Jefferson, Mississippi, has a plantation, Uh, and what he represents is something that keeps evolving and changing right to the end of the novel. And the novel's ending is just extraordinary. When um, Shreve McCannon, the Canadian, says to, to Quentin Compson, I who regard you now, he's talking about thousands of years from now, I who regard you now will have sprung from the loins of African kings, Mm. it's such an anthropological statement you know in a time of jim crow in time of segregation uh it's it's just amazing and we haven't even gotten to uh to me maybe the greatest character ever in american literature which is charles bond who is of mixed race and what's fascinating about charles bond is that to look at him and this, of course, can be true with people who identify as black, he doesn't look black. Right. He's not, or to use the words of the time, he's not Negro.
0: Right, right.
2: Um, And uh, he behaves with such a sophistication Mm -hmm. and with such grace. Uh, He rarely speaks in the novel, but there's a letter that he writes. And it's one of the few occasions in Faulkner's work uh, in which his character is able to write in a style and with a complexity that rivals Faulkner's
0: right right. and he
2: gives this to a mixed race man and and what part of what makes the novel great i think uh, and that people might miss if they don't have a sense of of the history of american literature is into the 1930s what do mixed race uh people represent uh they, they represent um, a diluting of white mm. blood. Right. They, repre- they, they actually, they're not one or the other. They're confused people. Mm-hmm. They're people who don't really fit into the society. They're neither white nor black. And that's supposed to make them psychologically disabled. Right. <laughs> well, right. the last thing in the world that Charles Bond is is psychologically disabled. Sure. Yeah. The person who's psychologically disabled is the pure white southerner, Quentin Thompson.
0: Right. So the right.
2: irony of this is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I make one reference in the second volume to Barack Obama mm-hmm. because that's one of the things that was made him both appealing but also disturbed people. Mm-hmm. He's not really black some right. black people say.
0: right he's mm-hmm. not really right.
2: black some white people say
0: mm-hmm.
2: he's yeah. charles bond he,
0: <laughs> i never know, made that connection and but yeah not even,
2: mm-hmm. people say he's not even american you know yeah. right barack obama he came from kenya right you know uh and why and, you know hawaii is exotic <laughs> enough but no well, no we <laughs> have to you know because his father's african yeah. and charles bond same thing he comes from new orleans a sophisticated <laughs> cosmopolitan city What's he doing in this backwater provincial place, Jefferson, Mississippi? Right. So, that, you know, for, for Faulkner to imagine a character like this, there's just no one like this in American literature. So yeah. that's, that's, that's why. You know, I mean, yeah. there, are, there are a lot of other reasons. It's a sure. novel about displacement. Mm-hmm. You know? The history of the 20th century and now the 21st hist- century is refugees. Yeah. And Bonn is a kind of refugee. But so is Faulkner in Hollywood. Right. He was a displaced yeah. person. It's a novel about displacement. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just can't get a novel that's more relevant. Uh, to world history, let alone American history. Yeah, yeah. So, so as Billy Crystal says, don't get me started. Yeah, no, I what <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to get you started. That was that was great. And,
0: and, yeah. and I, 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 much of that resonates with my reading of it and and, uh, and you're giving me even more to think about there for sure. Um, I did want to think in terms of Absalom Absalom, you know, thinking about how that book is structured and how it sort of works as a novel. I can't help but think about how you might relate to it as a biographer, because it is in a way, a biography of not only Charles Baum, but Thomas That's Sutpen right. and about how biographies are constructed. Um, and, and so, you know, is there an element of, okay, so we have got this telling the story of Thomas Sutpen and it's getting refracted and, and, and watered down and, and recapitulated and all these things. Um, when you think about a subject you're writing a biography about, um, Say like William Faulkner, there were William Faulkner biographies before, mm-hmm. before yours. And, and, you know, I'm sure there were Marilyn Monroe biographies before yours. Oh yeah. What is it? How do you then take that and, and build on that and say, well, there's another, there's another layer or there's another, another way to shine light on this subject. There's another way to look yeah. at this that's relevant yeah. and worth me
2: spending all the time and energy to do it. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, uh, uh you mentioned my Toronto PhD. Mm-hmm. And I did a PhD dissertation on Faulkner, which is called oh, okay. "Uses Uses of the Past and the Novels of William oh, Faulkner." Very, very cool. It is available. As okay, well. all right. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's very in cool. print. Uh, You've and, got
0: about twenty. Uh, how many books in print? Uh,
2: dozens. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> close to forty. Actually. Okay, yeah. okay, yes. I, I didn't realize this in graduate school because nobody, even now in graduate school. Nobody thinks of, um, if you're in a department of English, no one really thinks of doing a biography. And you're discouraged from doing biographies Mm. um, for a whole variety of reasons. Hmm. Um, But I was interested in history uh, and historiography. And historiography is simply a study of the way history is told. That's essentially what historiography is. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Faulkner's novels, particularly Absalom Absalom, and a later one, on Moses. And I said, these are historiographical novels. Mm-hmm. They're not only about history, they're about the way history gets told mm-hmm. and changed, uh, which is what biographers are interested in. Um, but I didn't realize uh, that my real interest was not history per se, that my interest was biography. Mm. Uh, until I read Norman Mailer uh, in his biography of Marilyn Monroe because uh, he, he he talks about biography and what it means to be a biographer and what he does in that book, which is what the characters do in Absalom, Absalom, essentially, is is you've got a story that you're interested in. Uh, there's something in that story that appeals to you, and you begin to uh, you find an interest in that individual, whoever that is, And you realize if there are other biographies or in in Absalom Absalom, other stories about this person, uh, there's something missing. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you know there's something missing? Mm -hmm. Well, there might be missing evidence or there might be conflicting testimony, but there's also something missing because you think you know something about this character. There's something in this character you identify with. So then you begin to say, well, maybe I should write a biography because Mm -hmm. there's, they, you know, there are things, uh, and this is true with all my, my subjects, if there've been other biographies of them, there are Mm -hmm. things about my subjects that I say, I know something. I may be operating under an illusion that this Mm -hmm. is true, uh, but it's an important illusion for me that it doesn't matter how many biographies there have been of Marilyn Monroe or uh, William Faulkner, I know things because of my own experiences and certain things that my subject has gone through um, that I think tell a story that hasn't been told yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I think people often say, well, why is there another biography of so-and-so? As if what biography is is simply content. Right, right. You know, it's huh. it's a story. Mm-hmm. Right, I know right. the story yeah. of Faulkner. Why do I need to know this story right. again?
0: He's already got a Wikipedia page. Yeah, what do you exactly. what else is there to say about I, yeah. it? Right. Yeah.
2: I used yeah. to have editors in New York say when I was when my agent was pitching my uh, biography of Lillian Hellman and an editor actually said to a, well, Helm has written her own story. And I, I thought, <laughs> wow, What? Well, yeah, yeah, she did. But that's an autobiography. There's a world of difference between an autobiography and a biography. Oh, yeah. And enormous, a, a, a sophisticated right? sophisticated editor in York can't see that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, an autobiography, I'm sure there's a lot to be gained from an autobiography as a biographer reading someone's autobiography. Oh, sure. It's probably yeah. a good reference. But I think about with Faulkner, I mean, Faulkner spent many years of well his whole story about going to the the royal canadian air force or that he, he was a fabulist about so many details about that yes. that okay if you if you were just going off of what faulkner said about his life who how do you know what's real what's not there's yeah there's, there's bs well, there's yeah know.
2: there was this famous literary critic malcolm Colley who put together this anthology mm. the the uh, uh portable faulkner and he wanted to have a biographical section. And Fokker mm. had been telling, as you say, these fabulous tales about yeah. World War I. Yeah. And Colley kept saying, well, you know, we need to put in some things about your, uh, your war service. And by this time, Fokker, you know, was, was an older man. He was in his 40s, and uh, he was about a few years away from the Nobel Prize. And he kept saying to Kylie, eh, let's, let's get that. <laughs> you know, big deal. Oh, we don't need yeah. that so much <laughs> anymore. We don't need that. Just say, I served. You know, I served. That's all people need to know.
1: Um, may and I any ask a question? Stuff. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 Uh, I wanted to ask, of course, cause this is the podcast about sort of the dark side of creativity and mm-hmm. uh, dovetailing into what you were saying about your insights into Faulkner and all the rest of it. If you had to summarize or I guess riff on what at the heart of his personality and his own, his own biography, his own past was the thing do you think that drove that, that, um, I guess, wild creative energy to not just have one book going, but two and great novels. And, and that incredible run he
0: had of, of As I Lay Dying and, and uh, Sound in the Fury, you know, writing these things. Yeah. Was, the, yeah.
2: I think uh, it's, um, and it's partly why I identify with him. You know, no man in Faulkner's family lived past the age of 60. Um, uh, his grandfather and father both died at early age and his great-grandfather was murdered. Yeah. Uh, the the old kernel. Yeah. yeah, the old colonel. I, I think part of it is Faulkner's sense of mortality. Mm. He, he, he uh, said at one point when someone asked him about his style, he's trying to get the whole of existence into a single sentence. You know, people ask, why are some of these sentences so long? Because li- life is in suspension, and, he, and mm. the, the sentences are suspenseful in that way very different from the suspense of most detective novels, or you want to get on with the plot and so on. Right, so people right. get very frustrated with Faulkner for that reason, but he's holding up all this at once. And he's a man in a hurry. Um, hmm. he, he has, I think he does have this sense of mortality. Uh, and I think there's an urge there um, that can't be entirely explained. Mm -hmm. Um, what attracts me to him and it attracts me to all of my subjects is their incredible ambition. Um, an ambition that, uh, can't be satisfied. Um, some people, if they could write the sound of fury, would say, well, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, (laughs) I can't do, I can't do better than that. And the other thing about Faulkner is he wasn't afraid of failure. He wasn't afraid to fail, uh, and he often said that in, in his interviews. That's so kind I of think,
0: where he got in trouble with Hemingway a little bit, right? Because right, he, he said Hemingway wasn't brave. He was talking yeah. about this. I think as a writer, yeah, right, yeah. He right. didn't
2: take enough risks. He didn't mm-hmm. not, take enough chances. That's that's why Faulkner liked Thomas Wolfe because he thought Wolfe was a great risk taker. Yeah. Um, so i I think I think it's that driving ambition that sense of mortality Mm -hmm. and also that indefinable literary sensibility uh, that most people in his environment didn't understand and didn't appreciate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because they didn't understand and appreciate, he had to show them. Right, right. He had to say, see, look at this. The, The other thing is, he did have one person, and this is often true with, with great figures. He was a mama's boy. He <laughs> no. had a mother who, who thought he was just great.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And Faulkner's niece says in her memoir of Faulkner and the Faulkner family, the only person that ever heard him uh, talk about his work was his mother. Wow. But how did he talk to his mother? They went off into a room and talked about what Faulkner was writing. He never shared that, very wow. rarely, even with his own wife, right. not with his daughter, not with his brothers, not with anybody mm. else, which is, this is going beyond what you asked me, but no, right. um, Faulkner, uh, what, what, what intrigues me about Faulkner is how much he won't tell us about himself. That, that's a real uh, goad to a biographer right (laughs) how do you talk about a man who unlike sylvia plath is not writing down what happens every day
0: right right you
2: you know he's he writes letters but compared to hemingway for example hemingway's letters go on for would go on for volumes and volumes and volumes (laughs) you know that faulkner does not he won't put any part of himself in a letter it's very Mm. rare for him to do that because it all goes into the fiction Mm. So I had to, at various points in the biography, almost like a Poe detective, uh, find what was hiding in plain sight. That's what Monsieur Dupin does in a, in Poe's short story, yeah, the purloined yeah. per- letter. Mm-hmm. It's it's there, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's it's really hard to see, even though it, it's there in front of us. Yeah. So the, it, 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 he's just the most to me the most intriguing subject I've ever had because he says it once to his mother. He, he writes to her from New Orleans and he says, uh, I met Sherwood Anderson. We really got, got along together. Um, Anderson was touting the first uh, uh, novel that, published novel that Faulkner was writing, Soldier's Pay. And he said, Anderson's writing a story. It's the story was called A Meeting South. And he said, I'm in it as a character, you know, I'm disguised. His name is David in the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm in it, and and then he says to his mother, "Don't tell anybody." You know, it's like it's like a trade secret. Right? Don't share this with anybody. That was in 1925.
0: That's before he'd had any real success. Right? Yeah.
2: And he he stuck by that his entire life. Wow. Wow. You know, he he never Hmm. parted the curtain. You You never saw behind what was going on. The only way you can get at that is in a few letters. Uh, And in his, you know, his manuscripts, his revisions and things like that. Hmm. And the other way you do it, and it goes back to Absalom, Absalom, is that if you stick with the material long enough, you see patterns. Sure. Uh, And you see what's important to him. And sometimes it's one sentence. Uh, There's a section of my second volume where this is after he's won the Nobel Prize. And he goes to Hollywood as a favor to Howard Hawks. That's one reason, because Hawks was, he worked better with Hawks than anybody else in Hollywood. And, and Hawks protected him, took care of him. And also because the pay was really good. Oh, yeah, they were even making, after, oh, yeah. Even after winning the Nobel Prize, uh, the money was important because he, he wanted to be like his great-grandfather. His great-grandfather was a public benefactor. So all that Nobel Prize money went into scholarships and other things. Faulkner did not hold on to that money. Um, And the royalties were just really beginning to start in the 50s -hmm. with his novels in terms of him leading a comfortable living. So he goes to Hollywood. He says to his lover, I have to work on this film, The Left Hand of God. I don't really think it's going to make a very good movie. Then he writes to another woman he was involved with, William, John Williamson. He's staying in the Chateau Marmont. He says, Chateau Marmont, fantastic. And he says, fantastic work. Just the opposite of what he said at the beginning. So I began to think about uh-huh. that. How, what happened to this man? Because he's never going to tell me. Right. So uh-huh. I, I, read, I read the script that he wrote for The Left Hand of God. It was eventually made into a film with Humphrey Bogart, but not with Faulkner's script. Mm. But it's the story about a man who's a soldier of fortune working for a Chinese warlord. And mm. he's on the run because he's done something the warlord doesn't like, sort of asserted his own authority. Mm. And he's on the run. And he he adopts a disguise in this Chinese village. He becomes, that is, he wears the clothes of a Roman Catholic priest. Mm. <laughs> and these people, uh, he's good at. It. He's a lapsed Catholic. He doesn't believe in God, but you know, it's it's his life. He, he's, he knows he's the traditions, and the yeah. he knows the traditions. He knows how to perform the service. He knows how to do confession. Oof. People bow down to him, and it turns out he's really good at being a <laughs> priest. <laughs> really good. <laughs> really good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And he's absolutely. Uh, What happens in Faulkner's version of this movie is that he actually at one point submits to the authority of the Catholic Church, says, you know, I've done wrong by impersonating this priest. Uh, And how he gets out of the business with the Chinese warlord is also quite interesting. Now, we don't really need to go into that, but I started to think about this. Why did Faulkner say it was fantastic work? He never said that about, only once before when when he worked on a film called Sutter's Gold. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally he, he 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 just as with his novels, he didn't talk about what he was writing. And all he says is this fantastic word. Well, this occurs after the Nobel Prize. Well, what happened after the Nobel Prize? He became a world figure.
0: Yeah, he was going his everywhere. Nobel
2: Prize speeches yeah. like no nobody else's. People came to him as a kind of sage, mm-hmm. really as a kind of priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, And Uh, he was most reluctant. mm -hmm. He thought of himself as impersonating this role, just like Mm -hmm. the guy in the film. And then I came across this letter to one of his friends, Phil Stone, from a young writer who said, I can't tell you how much William Faulkner means to me as an example. Well, Stone showed that letter to Faulkner. This had to have had an impact on Faulkner. And that's what that part of my book is about. You know, I don't say maybe, perhaps, maybe he felt this way. He must have felt this way. Right. I don't know. Right. But I present, <laughs> just as Faulkner does an Absalom, Absalom, I present the pattern.
0: Right. Did, right. Look
2: at this pattern. How yeah. could this pattern possibly be accidental?
0: Right. Right. Yeah, no, and that seems like that's the kind of, where well, you're right, you're trying to get after this figure who is a public figure, but has maintained... On purpose, some degree of mystery. I remember reading about this post Nobel phase and his being him being um, really re- reluctant to be, you know, to have biographical stuff written about him, to be interviewed, um, and yet he would go to. I think he went he went to South America at one point on a story. He went to of South story. America. He, he went, went to Japan. Japan, yeah. yeah. So so he the was first... willing to participate in it to some degree, yeah. but he didn't want people. In his ter- On his turf, it seemed exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. He,
2: when he first did this, when he first went on a trip for the State Department, mm-hmm. and he was, he was, there's nobody, no writer has ever done this. I mean, they, they've been on junkets for the State mm-hmm. Department, mm-hmm. for sure. But no one had this kind of world uh, position, mm-hmm. authority, mm-hmm. that Faulkner had. And when he realized that, just like the priests performing services and the people are so grateful, in the film when he realized that he and and this is where one of his letters that actually does reveal something he writes to the state department howard howland at the state department he says you know i think i can do some good here Hmm. well that 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 couldn't have occurred without the nobel prize You see what i mean right he he was never in that position before Hmm. to realize the impact his words might have on other people Right. Uh, it was a whole new thing. And that discovery, as I say, gets, I think, gets back into that movie script.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Yeah, I wasn't, I, I, I mean, I'm familiar somewhat with this Hollywood work, but I didn't know much of anything about that film. That's thats absolutely well, fascinating. Well, that's
2: the other thing. that, that That's why I wrote this biography, mm-hmm. because I've written about Hollywood figures, and I knew mm-hmm. Hollywood, and I knew what Hollywood did to people, uh, to actors, to writers, and so on. Uh, he acted as if Holly, he was impervious to Hollywood, um, but especially the memoir of his, his lover Meta Carpenter showed that that wasn't true. That occasionally <laughs> it, did, it did break through yeah. uh, to him, yeah. and that there is a synergy. Uh, there is a kind of intertextuality with the ac- academics call it, between the movies and the film. It's it comes in, into my book especially when I write about he wrote. He wrote the screenplay of uh, Drums Along the Mohawk. Again, it was mm-hmm. radically changed by the time it got to the screen. But mm-hmm. if you look at his original screenplay and then you read his novel, The Wild Palms, there are actually a few lines in The Wild Palms that come right out of the oh, really? script for Drums Along the Mohawk. And there are also there's a reference to Eisenstein. He worked on an Eisenstein yeah. script when he was working on Sutter's Gold. Mm-hmm. And there's a reference to Joan, Joan Crawford who oh, – really? um, Yes, when he was working with Howard Hawks, they were going to do a film of his short story. And the studio said, it's all men. We need a <laughs> role for Joan <Joel> Crawford. <laughs> and Hawks, Hawks said to him, Bill, I hate to break it to you. Because had, Faulkner had already written the script and, and Hawks liked it. The producer at MGM, Irving Thalberg, liked it. They were all set to go. And they were doing like three or four uh, films a year with Joan Crawford, and there wasn't anything to do. And Thalbrook suddenly said to Hawks, I have to break it to you, but you're going to have to write a woman into this movie. (laughs) So what happened then? This is, again, an instance where we don't really know. What we do know is Crawford was uneasy uh, because she knew it was a man's picture. And she says, you've got to make me talk like the men. -hmm. Now, the other thing I know about Hawks is he would sit down with Falk and say, Now, I know you, you know, this was early in the early 30s. You don't know much about filmmaking, but here's the way the camera works. You know, Mm -hmm. Orson Welles once said, You can can describe the basics in a day. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you can do it, but I mean, you can describe the basics to a writer in a day, what what you expect him to do in a treatment or a screenplay. Mm -hmm. And Hawks did that. But what people don't talk about is, I think John Crawford did that too. Oh, really? I know that yeah. they had a meeting and I know yeah. she would have sat down and she would have said, now, you know, you know, what's in it? it goes into a Joan Crawford film, et cetera. She had to have done that because it was in her own interest to do that.
0: Right. And she sure. was that kind of self-possessed. Sort and of, she was that kind yeah. of
2: self-possessed person. Yeah. So yeah. he learned all that. Try and find anywhere in the archive, you know, what, right. what, what he might have learned from Joe Crawford. And and again, literary scholars, what, what are they interested in? They're interested in Son of the Fury. And if Faulkner says right. all those films weren't important, they just take him at his word.
0: Right, right. Uh, uh,
2: whereas my feeling is this guy was a great writer. If he was yeah. a great writer, nothing was lost on him.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Why do you think he would dismiss the Hollywood experience? Is it because he's he doesn't think it has the, the sort of artistic merit that the literature does that's, or that's part of it yeah yeah i was, I was thinking to because it wasn't that successful in hollywood in terms of he didn't have uh, any any screenplays that or films that he worked on that um you know rival the great classics of that time really I, I don't even know what stands out that he still has a screen credit for to have and
2: to have not yes to um, have and have not in the big sleep in the big and sleep, i think yeah. in both cases he was he was instrumental Mm-hmm. I think he didn't want to take more credit because he was a hired hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was work for hire. Mm-hmm. He was usually working in collaboration. Right. Um, on the big sleep, it was him and Lee Brackett, who, okay. who was a woman. Mm-hmm. He worked very mm-hmm. well with her. He had a sense of structure. She talked about this, how he sat down, he said, no, I can do this. You can do that, you know, and mm-hmm. that worked. Um, and to have and have not his his creation of the the um, Walter Brennan character in that film it's him uh, mm-hmm. Eddie Eddie only has a couple lines in the in the novel to have and have mm-hmm. not and Joel Firth- Firthman wrote the original script uh, and the Eddie ca- Eddie character was quite different uh, so what we have and it's really important as I point out both in my Walter Brennan biography and the Faulkner biography. It really made the difference into what that film is. It, it's one of the great anti-fascist films. Mm-hmm. And Faulkner understood that because he had, 1925 had been in Mussolini's Italy mm-hmm. uh, and he understood the way fascism worked. And of course he would have understood it by simply living in the South, which right. in many ways was a fascist land. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he said of light in August when he created the character Percy Grimm, I created the first Nazi. This was 19. 19- started writing in 1931, you know, before yeah. Hitler came to power. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he, he knew those things. He was more political than people gave him credit mm-hmm. for. But as far as films go, I think it's because, uh, as I say, he was part of a team. And unlike, say, Scott Fitzgerald and a lot of other very good writers, he, he didn't resent that. Mm-hmm. He was there to pick up a paycheck. He was like a carpenter. He was, he was there to do really good work. Mm-hmm. He could do piece work. He could write a scene in a film like Air Force uh, when nobody else could do it. And Hawke mm-hmm. said, Bill, I think you can do it. And he did, it's a wonderful scene uh, in Air Force. He could do that kind of, he could work off the books for Jean Renoir in a film called The Southerner. He could do very well, especially in terms of his sense of structure. He had problems with film dialogue. There's no doubt about it. And that's what people often mention, but his, he, he had a cinematic imagination. In terms of what he could visualize and the way he could structure that vision, and you could see that even before he goes to Hollywood in a in a novel like Sanctuary, yeah. very very cinematic novel. So I think um, I think there was that. I think he felt his reputation, you know, rested on him being a novelist. And of course, there's there's still a debate to this day whether you would consider screenplays literature or not. Um, yeah. And so it it, it just wasn't. You know he worked on over 50 projects mm. uh, and so a lot of this was incomplete work they weren't all produced right um he was upset about hollywood he actually had some sentences about hollywood in his nobel prize speech which he then took out uh, <laughs> so that's how i know hollywood was on his mind yeah, yeah you know even sure. when he's writing nobel prize speech you know yeah when you look at the total number of days he spent something like four to five years in Hollywood. That's yeah, a, it's long. a
1: long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. And,
1: and Hollywood has a way uh, in the American psyche. Uh, if I'm taking anything from this interview, and I'm very grateful for this, uh, learning a lot, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. Brad, I'm enjoying your questions as well. Uh, it's just this, this um, gap between the sense of Faulkner as a, an author of the old South. And then this Hollywood Faulkner are so at odds, mm-hmm. I think, in in the image we have of him. So it's really a pleasure to kind of have that that bridge crossed a little bit here as as we listen to you. Um, it, uh, but it also seems to me, uh, uh, again, based on this interview, he is an author worth reading now and oh, continuing yeah. to go back to, uh, at the risk of making a cliche. There, I mean, I I don't think. I mean, I think I know you're going to agree. <laughs> but, uh, but I just think it's worth stating the, that this, this interview has me feeling that way. Um, yeah, so that, yeah.
2: yeah, I think that's true. And I think his, his later work, um, especially the last two volumes of the Snopes trilogy, mm-hmm. um, much underrated. Pe- people really at the time when those books came out in the 50s, they really didn't understand what he was about, I think. Hmm. Uh, and I think, I think people are ready to read those books now. Mm-hmm. And I think we'd have a very different view of, of, you know, many literary critics were stuck in the 30s and 40s. And he had moved on. And one of the reasons he had moved on, to go back to Hollywood, is mm-hmm. what he was writing in Hollywood. He was writing war movies. He wrote a, a film called Battle Cry, which... If it had ever been produced would have cost four million dollars and would have covered every battle theater in the world you know from china yeah. to occupied paris to to the whole thing mm. um so he he was moving in another direction yeah. he, he he had this sense of the world building up in him uh, well and he
0: traveled now and he'd met yeah. all kinds of people he'd been in Every circle, every circle of society you can imagine, yeah, um, yeah, it's very and going from you know writing as I lay dying, supposedly on the back of a wheelbarrow, to you know winning the Nobel and touring the world, and and yeah, yeah, he's definitely became a kind of cosmopolitan person, uh, despite maintain i can never pronounce the county's name What it yoke yeah yop,
2: no, yop, no, putoffa, yeah so you yep. can yop, tell that you're
0: a top, scholar because that just rolls right off your
1: tongue gwen <laughs> gwen was the ringer on the core episode uh yeah. aaron gwen came in and just said it right away and, we yeah, ran you know. and we're they there like okay great um <laughs> i i do have another question uh sure. as we Kind of wind down the core episode here and look forward to the the Patreon episode, the After Dark, where we're going to talk about Faulkner's favorite television show, which that's going to be a lot of fun. The question I have um, pertains to booze and alcohol, and I would ask, oh sure, uh, yeah, I would ask what what role do you think <laughs> in in five minutes? <laughs> what role do you <laughs> sure. think alcohol played in his life? And did he ever did he ever try to to kick it? Did he ever try yeah. to quit?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. He never tried to quit. He never, he never yeah, he, he, he said, you know, one of his jokes was, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of nourishment in an acre of corn. You know, he, <laughs> he loved white lightning. He loved, you know, <laughs> he, he loved his bourbon. He loved really, you know, and he was, by the way, he was a connoisseur of fine wine. The guy oh, knew okay. his wines. Okay. Uh, and unlike, you could call him an alcoholic. Uh, But unlike a lot of alcohol, his wife was an alcoholic. She eventually Mm -hmm. kicked it. She went to Alcoholics Anonymous in the last few years of their marriage. She was completely sober. But she was the kind of alcoholic where she had a drink or two and she went silly. She went crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, He could be a social drinker. He could Mm -hmm. go for long, long periods of drinking uh, wine, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, and in company. Or he could stay with his New York publisher who had a bar, you know, right in the house. And the publisher said he never went to the bar, he never took a drink, and I don't think he drank, or very little while he was writing. People think, you know, well that mm-hmm. prose is because he was drunk, and no, you don't write I, that kind of stuff I, when you're I, drunk. I, that
0: was the thing is too. I don't buy that. I mean, I, I no. believe being a heavy drinker, but the actual right. writing
2: itself, yeah, I, I write joke about it. Yeah, I write fiction, and you can't. You can't yeah, do that. <laughs> one of the relatives in the family had trouble reading him. And she said, Bill, were you, were you drunk when you wrote this? Yeah. And he said, well, not all the time. <laughs> right. 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 But, mm. but he, he was unapologetic about it. He was apologetic in the sense that if he made a fool of himself, mm, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, which he or, did from time
0: to time. Which he did from time yeah. to
2: time. Yeah. Uh, he, he, would, um, he would apologize because that was bad manners. Mm-hmm. But the idea of going to the alcoholics, uh, one of his uh, screenwriter buddies, uh, Buzz Bezerides, uh, and uh, Mita Carpenter, his, his uh, lover, tried to drag him off to not an AA meeting, but some, some kind of drying out spot in Hollywood. And on the way there, he said, well, are they gonna give me a drink? <laughs> uh, he just, yeah, he was incorrigible. I mean, he just—there was no guilt about right. it at huh. all. You know, there was there was none of that. Yeah. Uh, Lauren Bacall, uh, when he was in Europe, uh, um, again working for Howard Fox in a film called Land of the Pharaohs. But before they got over to Egypt, they were in Europe in, in Saint Moritz, and uh, Lauren Bacall and, and Humphrey Bogart was there, and of course he, he knew them quite well from uh, to have and have not uh and uh, she said at one point to him she said bill why do you drink mm-hmm. and he said well if i have a drink i feel good if i have a second drink i feel better and if i have a third drink there's no stopping me
0: <laughs> oh geez yeah that's that's a dangerous attitude to have <laughs>
1: i i don't think that we're gonna top that for the no. for the main episode here uh brad do you want to bring us on home and we'll uh we'll take a quick break and then do the patreon
0: yeah so um that's uh that's it for the main episode thank you so much carl much much appreciated we'll have links to all your stuff in, in all of the places where the, the episode is posted and, and we'll ha- be active on twitter about it um you can follow us folks at uh, on Twitter at art of dark pod um, uh, or go to the website, artofdarkpod.com. all kinds of links there to support us on Patreon, et cetera. And Carl, where can they, where can people find you, find your work and that sort of thing?
2: Well, i uh, I have a, now I have a weekly book review column at the New York sun. Mm-hmm. So if they just do newyorksun.com, they're going to find me there. They're going to find me on Facebook. They're going to find me on Twitter.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, they're going to find me in uh, all those places. My website, carlrollison.com. So I'm not hard to find.
0: No, you're not. You are uh, <laughs> the hardest working man in biography, I think. So, uh, so yeah, again, much appreciated. Uh, folks, give Carl a follow. Uh, you know, do a deep dive, see what he's, what he's up to, and, and uh, show him some love. Really a pleasure. I learned a
1: lot, and I think I'm, we're going to call this episode a man in a hurry. A man in a hurry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and a hurry. I like that. I like that.